The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning, everyone. It's, morning. it's nice to be here with you again. Um, is it warm enough in here? It, if anyone wants to, they can crank it up. It's in the back. I was a little cold while we were sitting. So this morning, um, I thought that I wanted to um, talk about the quality of sila in the practice. And um, sila is actually the foundation and the framework of all Buddhist practice. So um, when we uh, review what the three legs of, of Buddhism are, it's uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is the practice of, um, uh, it refers to virtue, virtue and moral conduct, um, a word that's more uh, user-friendly for us here in the West is it's the practice of integrity. And um, it's, it's a practice that we take up in relationship to, um, to cultivating uh, the conscious culture, cultivation of uh, actions and speech. So sila will express itself through our actions and our speech. Samadhi is, as we know, the practice of meditation, and then panya is the wisdom. So the foundation of the practice is um, sila, and the meditation is built on this practice, and out of the meditation um, comes wisdom. So many of us here in the West... um, we come to practice through the doorway of meditation. I'm quite sure that many people here in the room uh, came to the practice in that way themselves. I certainly did. And uh, I didn't have any concept at all of the role or the place of sila or even that sila was part of the Buddhist practice. It was like I came and I wanted to learn to meditate and I was suffering and I thought if I meditated my suffering would go away. And um, that's certainly a legitimate way to come to practice and if you keep at it you do begin to notice changes and transformations from the mere act of meditating. But what happened for me and what happens for many people is that in the process of cultivating a meditation practice, the necessity, the need for um, sila to be part of our lives becomes more and more apparent. So um, we, as we meditate, sometimes... uh, not sometimes, all the time, at least that was, this is my experience, the mind throws up for us what kinds of habits we have. And these habits sometimes are experienced with sense of um, regret or remorse or some sort of judgment that, um, you know, things aren't going the way that we'd like them to go. And, you know, we sort of see our behavior. We see the way other people behave. We start to think about it, reflect on it, um, look into what, uh, you know, what's causing us to feel the way that we're feeling. All the while thinking that we can meditate the unpleasant um, the unpleasantness associated with some of those reflections away. Um, and forgive me if I'm putting you into the same category as, as the way that I did it. But in any event, um, after practicing for a while, it became really apparent to me the importance of having uh, a firm foundation in 
ethics or uh, morality. And um, <clears throat> when I stopped to think about how much time I actually spend on the cushion meditating and compared it to how much time I actually spend relating to myself and to other people in my day-to-day experience, <clears throat> it became even more clear how important the cultivation of you know, integrity or virtue was um, in terms of me finding some sort of happiness or in terms of finding some sort of happiness in life. And um, <clears throat> so, so how does one practice and cultivate virtue in the context of Buddhist teachings. And the Buddha, in his generosity, gave us a number of different training rules, training precepts. So for monks, there's 227 rules that they have to follow. When I was a monk, I, I had no idea what I was taking on. <laughs> But for lay people, there are five precepts. And these five precepts are the core of the precepts that the monastics take on. And for women, for bhikkhunis, it's even more onerous. There's like 300 or something, or more than 300 rules that the women have to follow. So um, are you all familiar with the precepts, what they are? Yes? No? I'll, I'll review them for you. So the, the five precepts are um, the precept of non-harming or not taking the life of another living creature, um, not acting with aggressiveness, and um, the intention to harm. So that's the first precept. The second precept is to, uh, to not take what hasn't been offered. In other words, not to steal. The third precept is to um, be respectful in our relationships and, and with other people in terms of our sexuality. So not to use our sexuality in a way that is harmful to ourselves or to others, hurtful to ourselves or others. Um, the fourth precept is to use speech wisely, not to lie, not to gossip, not to disparage, not to not to go to places with speech that aren't aren't skillful. And then the last precept is not to misuse intoxicants so that we have clouded minds and um, and then we forget about the other precepts and um, go helter skelter uh, breaking them. So um, these training precepts are basically opportunities to, to, for training in, in bodily restraint as well as in speech. Um, they allow us to think about what we're doing in a way that slows us down, that allows us to... Uh, put the brakes on things, so to speak. Uh, so we find ourselves in a situation where, uh, um, or we can find ourselves in a situation where uh, we're about to slip off into some, in some way that will, will be a breach of one of these precepts. And by just acknowledging the role of the precepts in, in our lives, we begin to have a moment that we can pause and slow down and think about whether we really want to say that our boss is a jerk to our coworkers. Is it really necessary to say this? Is this, is this going to lead to anything other than 
a rumination or a spin out or or feeding some desire within ourselves to um, um, get some sort of satisfaction by by going there. I don't know if you've ever experienced this type of thing, but if you've ever looked at the way that you use speech, sometimes it becomes really clear that we say so much more than we need to. And um, by withholding or refraining from saying things, even things that seem innocent, we can find that that there's more ease in our lives. We're less burdened with a sense of, oh, why did I say that? How could I have ever said such a thing? That type of thing. So... So basically these training precepts um, allow us or offer us a way to learn how to be in more harmonious relationship with one another. And it's not that we don't have like charged emotions. It's not like everything becomes fine just because we're deciding that we're going to try to um, we're going to try to remember these these guidelines and and live by them you know we get angry we get depressed we get you know lazy we get whatever it is but when these states start to come on us as we're practicing with the cult, the conscious cultivation of ethical behavior, it's a kind of meditation. And it allows us to see these things as they're arising and slow down and sort of put the brakes on so that we don't have to go there right away. Does this make sense? You? Has anyone experienced it like this? Have you experienced it like that? It's really not rocket science. It's just common sense. It's just that we need to think about it and keep it in mind and remember it and apply it in appropriate and skillful ways in our lives. So um, Buddhism is made up of lots of different practices, lots of different aspects of practice. And as I I mentioned earlier, meditation is basically one facet of Buddhism. Sila, virtue, and integrity is another. And um, these aspects are actually different tools, and they work together, they fit together to make a total practice which is a, uh, a practice for, for liberating us from suffering. So we can't really meditate without being in integrity, and we're not going to ever cultivate insights unless we can slow down enough to be concentrated and meditate. So sila and the precepts are part of the whole package of Buddhism, and they're an important part. And I just got new glasses, and boy, are they strong. I can't, I can't, I can't see with them. I can't see without them. So, um, so we need to keep these training guidelines in the forefront of our minds. And um, when we do, we, th- we think about them more. They become more real to us. Um, a, a practice that I do uh, when I begin a meditation or when I begin my day of meditation, I'll oftentimes, most of the time, I'll try to recite the precepts to myself. I'll try to take the precepts, I'll refresh the precepts, on a daily basis. And as I say them, I, tr- I try to reflect on what do they mean? What's the implication here? You know, what happens when I pay attention to them? What are the results? What happens when I don't pay attention to them? So um, they just need to be kept in the forefront of the, of the mind. And when we're 
willing to practice them in this way and we're willing to be, you know, honest with ourselves and flexible with ourselves, um, we don't use them in a way that becomes like um, goody-goody or something or that we're somehow someone has died and named us the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong and what other people should be doing and shouldn't be doing. It's just that we use this in a very matter-of-fact and simple way. We can apply this um, in our lives and also in our meditation. Sometimes when we're meditating, um, uh, you know, the habits of our mind are are in full default mode. And um, when we are consciously working with sila, it's another tool in which to meet those habits of mind and, um, you know, not feed unwholesome habits, um, to, but to encourage wholesome habits. So are there any benefits to keeping the precepts? Do you think? Yes? What would some of the benefits be? What do you think some of the benefits might be to keeping the precepts? Less regret on what you might have just said because deep down you said it. Can you use that microphone? Yeah. Because you're giving a good answer. Less regret on um, like what you might say to someone because you actually thought about, do I really need to say this? Um, mm -hmm. So you don't have to do the after thing where you're maybe um, wondering why you said something and wondering what the impact was. Right. So then you keep it to yourself and it doesn't go out there and infect anything or right. hurt anyone. Beautiful, yeah. So. As always, I'm really glad I came today. Um, in using the precepts, what I was as I was listening to you, I I was remembering um, as a child, I used to think all I want to do when I grow up is be a good human being, mm -hmm. and by that, I re I I couldn't have said it then. To be kind. Mm -hmm. Um, because I would never come up with the word compassionate, because mm -hmm. as you know, as a kid, so it's kind of like a goal that I have to cause less, forgive the word, crap in other people's lives, mm -hmm. and also in my own. Mm -hmm. So I that's that's why I think it's good to keep them in mind and try to practice them. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so I would substitute the word crap with harm. Harm, okay. Yeah, it's the first precept. It's the first precept. And, um, you know, building on what you said, it's basically, um, it brings us clarity and it brings us freedom from a sense of remorse. You know, this is one of the most, you know, immediate benefits of it. And um, does anyone else want to say anything? Um, I think it makes life a lot less messy yes. and more simple. So in the end, not only clarity, but more time and more quality time. And right. part of that's improved relationships Right. Um, but a lot of it's just the fallout of many of those uh, activities mm -hmm. creates a lot of work. Right. And so, in a way, the precepts allow us to simplify our lives and to relinquish a lot of stuff that causes a lot of work in our lives, right? As well as creating a lot of sense of of why did I say that, I regret this, and you know, I'm filled with remorse, and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the things that I really want to point out here is that I think is really important is that um, 
living with the precepts or living with integrity really allows us to trust ourselves and it allows others to trust us too. When, when we trust ourselves that we're not, you know, going out and causing other people harm or saying things that are spiteful and mean and, you know, divisive, um, there's a sense of being able to trust ourselves. There's a s- sense of things being um, safe. And, and when we have that sense about ourselves, it's somehow people can pick that up. You know, they know that you're trustworthy, that you're not going to lie to them, that you're not going to steal from them, that you're not going to try to, in some way, um, manipulate them into doing things that they don't want to do or whatever. There's a sense of trustworthiness about it. And so this was one of the biggest lessons for me when I actually took up the precepts as a practice. It was, and it didn't happen right away. It, 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 this, the, the insight didn't happen right away. It was a slow process. But I began to realize that a transformation had happened and that, wow, where I couldn't be, feel safe with myself in the past, where I couldn't, I didn't even know what was going on. I just knew that, you know, there was a sense that I needed to guard things and take care of things in that way, but um, to, to realize at a certain point that that wasn't, uh, that wasn't such a strong thing anymore. I was really more relaxed in my own skin, and, you know, I, I thought it was maybe because I was meditating, and I'm sure that that had a big, that had a lot to do with it. But I came to realize the simple observance of these training precepts gave me, and gives all of us, this, it creates an environment of safety. You know, I, I, many of you know that I uh, work out at Spirit Rock and um, there's no locks on any of the doors out there. And, you know, some people say, well, <laughs> where, where are the locks on the doors? But there's something really beautiful about being able to count on, on the integrity of a community and to know that you're safe within the community. And it's really important in terms of our practice that we have an environment that's safe. You know, some people um, have come from backgrounds where they really haven't been safe. And so even when they come to places like this, um, to meditate with their eyes closed can be a challenge. You know, so, you know, leaving the eyes open and a downward sort of unfocused gaze is completely fine. You can do that or you can do that if you, if you don't feel safe. But this sense of being able to trust and be safe is really um, important. And it allows us to sort of let our guards down it allows us to relax, and that relaxation allows us to go deeper and deeper into our meditations, deeper and deeper into our hearts. But it comes about because we're, so, we're solidly in this zone of, um, you know, integrity. And... Um, I want to just say in relation to that, that oftentimes this guarding that we do is, it's like a fortification of this sense of self that we have, this sense of self that needs to be guarded. It's not really, it's it's sort of our self-image and our particular set of anxieties and fears that we're 
taken care of. And to, to live with a sense of, of um, uh, or with the conscious focus of ethics in our lives allows us to relax this. So it's, it's then a foundation for our personal as well as our collective spiritual growth. In that kind of an environment, we can go deeper. So when you come here, you know that you're safe. You know that you're with like-minded people and that the um, opportunity to turn your mind towards things that will deepen your experience, deepen your um, contact with truth, becomes more available and more apparent. So in Buddhism, it says that there are three types of gifts. So the first gift is the gift of material things, like money or services, something like that. The second is the gift of the Dhamma, or the truth, or the teachings that guide one towards the truth. So the Dhamma itself. And then the third gift, which is wrapped in here with the sila thing, is the gift of fearlessness or security. And this is the the space where people can trust us and where we don't have to feel on guard all the time. So this is... This is one of the gifts that we can give ourselves. And in a way, this is, um, for those of us who practice compassion in a very conscious way, this is um, a real act of compassion, an act of um, self-compassion as well as compassion for others. So the precepts are a foundation for this kind of space. We experience this quality of trust and fearlessness in our meditation practice. And, and when we do, it allows the heart to open and allows us to be with ourselves in ways that we wouldn't normally feel safe or comfortable. Um, and it allows us to be with other people in that way too. And one of the things that it allows is it allows us to be with really charged emotions with difficult places. It allows us to be um, with confusion and turmoil, um, anxiety and fear, um, and to relinquish the sense of identification and the sense of being um, swept away by those things. It allows us to simply be with the truth of things the way that they are. And all of this, you know, as I'm speaking, I'm hearing how, I'm hearing myself, or I'm thinking, (laughs) I'm hearing myself at least, um, see the way that all of the different Buddhist practices are really tools that are given to us for our liberation and how they all work together. You see, sila is really compassion. And compassion is really love. And all of these things go together. And when these things are present, the mind becomes happy. And when the mind becomes happy, the mind is concentrated. And when the mind gets concentrated, the mind has access to insight, access to, to understanding the nature of the way things really are. So this is what Buddhism is really all about. It's about letting go. And the way that we let go is to cultivate these different tools. So the precepts provide the foundation and the container in which relinquishment is possible. Does this, does this make sense? Does this resonate for you? It's, it's a... It literally is a container in which we can relax. We can feel ourselves just put things down and we can let things happen on their own. We have, many of us have the idea that 
this practice is about doing. We have to do this, we have to do that, we have to cultivate this and cultivate that. And it is to a, to a degree about those things. You know, if we don't make an effort, nothing is going to happen. But the doing quality and aspect of this practice can sometimes get in the way of things unfolding in a natural sort of way. So we don't really have to um, force ourselves to focus on a particular object of concentration in order for concentration to arise. We have to cultivate an environment in which the mind is happy. And out of happiness, concentration arises naturally. This is, it's, a, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. It's like, how can that be? But I, I really want to go back to what I was saying about discovering in my own life, in my own practice, the transformative effect of sila, because what it has done is it's made me happier than I've ever been at any point in my life. It's given me a sense of safety that's greater than I've ever had at any point in my life. And these things are foundational. They don't feel in any way, I'm not in any way cavalier about this. Um, These things feel really deep. This is the foundation and the framework upon which all of practice, all of my personal practice is, has been developing. I didn't realize it, you know, and when I started to reflect on these things, it became more obvious. And then when I started to look into it, it became, I saw the importance of all of this. And it became a doorway through which relinquishment became a possibility. Letting go became something that was more than just an idea. It became an experience. To experience something is even the most simple and ordinary thing becomes extraordinary when it's, a direct, when it's directly experienced and it's not just a mental concept. So um, this is how practicing with the precepts fits into the, the whole path of liberation and, and into the fabric of our day-to-day life. If it doesn't if it's not applicable for us in our exchanges, in our relationships, in, their, in our daily life, then it doesn't have much meaning. So, um, so the Buddha, when he gave us his teachings, he, he spoke about two interconnected factors that are conducive to the arising of right view. And um, these are wise reflection, which is um, sort of an internal process that we go through, and having uh, really good spiritual friends, to be around people who share the same interest and share the same values. And when I say the same, it doesn't mean that we have to be around Buddhists exclusively. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about people who have a commitment to living with integrity, to have a commitment to, you know, looking at life below the surface of the material. So we need a a supportive community of like-minded friends, and we need a wholesome, safe place to practice, like this place is, or the environments that you create in your own world, in your own home. Um, <clears throat> yeah. 
it cannot be emphasized, overemphasized, the need to have people in our lives who are committed to walking this path with us. It's so, it can't, it's almost impossible to do on our own. We are really swimming against the stream. Our culture does not support this. You know, it seems like our culture should, but it doesn't support this. And we can have the best intentions, but without the support of community or other like-minded people, it becomes near on impossible. You have to be almost a saint in order to do it. So there's this famous um, exchange between the Buddha and his attendant Ananda, where the Buddha questions Ananda. He's always questioning Ananda, and poor Ananda is always giving the wrong answer. But he, he questions Ananda, and he says, Ananda, what is the place of Sangha in the holy life? What is the role of Sangha in the holy life, or the percentage of, of Sangha in the holy life? And Ananda answers, you know, Venerable Sir, Sangha is one half of the holy life. And the Buddha says, wrong, Ananda, <laughs> you're wrong. Sangha is the whole of the holy life. And I'll give you a little tidbit that most people don't know. The Buddhist Sangha, monastic Sangha, is the oldest living institution on the face of the planet today the longest living, unbroken institution on the planet today. Isn't that beautiful? With the teachings rather than a teacher being what has sustained them. Through. So these teachings that we're talking about today, even, you know, that community of, of practitioners monastic practitioners are practicing sila, samadhi, and panya, the same things that we're talking about. And they practice it um, with integrity and, um, you know, in a monastic setting, um, the conditions for practice are a little bit different than they are in the, in the lay world, are a lot different than they are in the lay world, but that doesn't mean that we can't practice um, with the same degree of, of um, intention to awaken. So um, it all comes back to how we live our day-to-day experience, how we live our day-to-day lives. And, you know, if you're like me and like most of us, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we really mess up. We just... We just mess up and blow it. So the precepts are basically an aspect of virtue or integrity. And we can use these precepts to guide us. And see, I'm not the only one that's cold. I see people putting their... <laughs> did, we, did we turn that heat up? <laughs> Everybody's bundling up here. I'm afraid I'm going to lose you all to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, frostbite, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's okay. Thank you. Huh? No, I, I think we're fine. Just put your coats on, everyone. <laughs> so, so, um, We can use the precepts, as I said, in very pragmatic and practical ways to, to um, really uh, give us a sense of, of safety, of wholesomeness, and of um, harmony within ourselves and uh, with one another. And um, I think most of you realize this, but the precepts are not like moral injunctions. It's not like if we break a precept, we're sinning and going to go to hell or something like that. The precepts, um, they weren't, 
they weren't given as moral injunctions. They didn't come down from on high like that. We basically were simply affirming our intention to undertake them as trainings. When we take the precepts, that's what we're doing. We're, we're making an affirmation that our intention and our resolve is to try our best to not kill things, to not harm things, to not be aggressive, to not steal, to not lie, to not cheat, to not commit adultery, and so on and so forth. And when we do, we recognize that, you know, <laughs> we have, and that, and that by not living by the precepts, there are certain consequences. When we lie, we have, there's consequences to lying. We can't trust ourselves and other people can't trust us. You know, when we cheat, we can't trust ourselves and other people can't trust us. That's all there is to it. It's not rocket science, as I said earlier. So we look at how our actions and our behavior affects us, how the taking on the precepts would affect us, what benefits they might bring us, what challenges they might bring us. You know, it's sometimes not people will come up and they'll come up with situations or find themselves in situations where um, it seems like they have to lie. You know, in order to be kind, they have to lie or something. See, so it's not easy to, to follow these. We just do the best that we can. They, 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 they're really, eth- it's training in ethical behavior. And so we have to find our way to- into what is really ethical. So these things aren't just black and white and we have to be flexible and we have to be willing to make mistakes and not you know, beat the heck out of ourselves when we do. So we explore the function of the precepts and how they work in our lives. And uh, I really want to emphasize that um, it's a serious investigation. It's not something that's just theoretical here that we're talking about or that I'm talking about. It's a serious investigation into the ways that the results of living by the precepts affects us directly and affects those around us directly. So many times people will sort of, you know, gloss over the precepts as though they're not important. But the whole purpose of my talk this morning is to just shine a light on the value of them and the role and the importance that they actually do play in the whole of the Buddhist practice. So training in the precepts is really about understanding our intention. Uh, there was a famous uh, Ajahn in, in Thailand, Ajahn Chah, many of you might know. And that was one of his teachings, that the precepts are about understanding inte- intentions. So, um, you know, they're a framework for reflection, and they help us reflect, and they help reflect back to us what's actually going on. So when, when, <clears throat> when we take the precept of non-stealing, you know, um, it helps reflect back to us when we're n- not necessarily taking some material thing, but when we're, we're taking something from someone emotionally or psychologically, you know, it helps us to see at deeper and deeper levels. Um, so I mentioned earlier that, you know, whether we're monastics or lay people, the five precepts create the framework and foundation for trust, for clarity, for well-being. And <clears throat> they become standards um, that we need in order to live safely and in harmony with one another. So there's... Just a few more minutes, and I have a couple more pages here. (laughs) So we can either take some questions, or I can really try to summarize what's here. I do want to say, um, I'm going to skip over something, and I'm just, I want to finish up by saying, 
and then we'll take questions if you have any, um, that when we take up the practice of um, you know, living by the precepts, precepts virtue and integrity, um, that a quality of non-remorse arises naturally. You pointed that out. So the Buddha teaches this, this dependent origination, this teaching on dependent origination. So one of the ways that we can, we can see the effect of sila in our life is that with virtue as a foundation, one doesn't need to create non-remorse. It arises on its own naturally. With non-remorse as a foundation, gladness arises naturally without an act of will. From gladness arises joy. From joy arises tranquility. From tranquility arises happiness. From happiness arises concentration, samadhi, the firm establishment of the mind, and stability. Samadhi is a natural condition arising when the mind is happy. This is a gift. <laughs> this is my gift to you at Christmas. Listen to this. Samadhi is a natural condition that arises when the mind is happy. It is not simply trying through intention or an act of will to make the mind firmly established or concentrated. We're not trying to force ourselves to be concentrated. I mean, we can try to do that, and we might get concentrated for a while, but deep samadhi can only exist when a happy mind is there. So this really is the key. This is the key to the whole practice. <laughs> uh, some people might argue with me, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say it. So I'm gonna say, please, please, please pay attention to the happiness part. Allow yourself to be happy. Close your eyes for a moment and feel into your heart and imagine what it's like to rest in happiness. Total unconditional happiness. You don't have to hold back from anything. You can just allow yourself to be happy. And when you're ready, you can come back into the circle. So I wish for all of you a season of happiness, <laughs> a life of happiness, and um, and uh, for you to reflect on on whether. <coughs> these practices of integrity, the cultivation of integrity and virtue have a, a place and role in your own lives and what that place is. So does anyone have any final question? We have literally a minute or so. a lot that um, would you put it on the mic because yeah. we're recording I'm sorry just 
the way you encapsulated it. Is anyone hearing me at this point? Yeah, okay. like an like a ice cream. There? Okay. There you go. Um, so I just want to thank you for that because mm. I hadn't really looked at things as a foundation. Mm -hmm. So I feel myself flailing more to get deeper. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know, I just resonated with what you said today and thank Great. you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. That's, it's, what you're saying is so, um, um, it's, it's true for so many of us. We overlook the power and the value of practicing, um, of, of sort of creating the conditions in which practice can occur. You know, when we sit down to meditate, you know, guilty as charged, just go right after my object, you see. But we have to, you know, we have to sort of prepare ourselves for practice. We have to prepare ourselves <laughs> to meet the mind in a way that can really be seen and tolerated. You know, when we go to bed at night, we just don't throw ourselves in the bed and, and then, like, instantly we're asleep. We, we generally fall into sleep, and we, we can do the very same thing there. But um, using the foundation, cultivating the foundation, is such a skillful means for practice. And then we can see that these these qualities actually arise naturally on their own. All we've done is we've sort of created a welcoming and safe environment. Okay, folks, <laughs> it's been very nice to be here with you. I hope you got something out of it. And what wasn't useful, just round file it and use what is. So may you all swim in the merit of practicing the Dhamma together. May you all uh, flower and fruit in your own, on your own path of liberation. And may our uh, combined um, intention to practice sincerely be a benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you. <laughs>